Hey everybody, Cat Bailey here. Just a quick update before we get started with this episode. Um, later on in the episode, I rant to Nadia about Super Robot Wars OG never coming out in the US and how frustrating it is that Bandai Namco is focusing on Project Cross Zone instead. Well, hilariously, Bandai Namco actually announced that Super Robot Wars OG for the PlayStation 4 will actually get localized in English. Uh, it's not a North American release, but it's uh, it's certainly a start. So just wanted to throw that in really quickly. So enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's get started. The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and the moment that we've been waiting for for a while now has finally arrived. Fire Emblem Fates should be out by the time that you listen to this podcast on Friday. It is the, was it, the two-part, essentially, edition of Fire Emblem, the sequel to Awakening. Um, For this game, Nintendo has opted to split the games into two distinct routes. Mike played Birthright. I played Conquest. Both of our reviews are now available on the website. And here to talk about those games with me is Mike Williams. Welcome back to the show. Hello, hello, folks. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Oh, you're talking to the audience. Okay. I'm talking to you. You are also a folk. I am a folk. And also joining us a little later will be Nadia Oxford, who will be talking about Project Cross Zone 2 with us. Um, she was a fan of, she was a, evidently a fan, which um, admittedly I find a little surprising. So I am going to pick her brain and see what her thoughts are, because I think she has a different and interesting perspective on the game for me. And I welcome fresh perspectives. But before we do that, Let's get into Fire Emblem Fates. Mike, you gave Birthright a 4.5 out of 5. I gave Conquest a 4.5 out of 5. So it seems like we are kind of two minds on this game. Uh, we both ended up liking it. Um, what in particular stuck out you, to you about Birthright? Uh, I, I'd probably say the, the best part that I had overall was uh, for Birthright is the fact that uh, intelligent systems gave me a lot of options. Um, they're kind of caught between a rock and, and, and a hard place in that uh, the Fire Emblem base that they had sort of cultivated with the past like 10 games prior to Awakening was very hardcore. Um, Loved the permadeath, loved really difficult strategic combat, but that's not really a route to make a game that is more mass market. Uh, And so Awakening was the first step towards, uh, I guess, more of that mass market uh, brand, which sort of, I guess, pissed off some of the more hardcore Fire Emblem fans. So Fates seems to be the answer to that. Um, with the harder conquest and then birthright and and birthright, what I really enjoyed is you can probably make it as as hard as you really want to. Um, 
you can avoid the dragon veins, which change the battlefield. You have the three difficulty settings. You have the three different handlings of death. Uh, if you want to, you can grind out levels to make your army stronger, or you can just go straight through uh, the campaign like all Conquest players have to. So I, I really like the fact that they're they're sort of trying to figure out how to reach casual fans who tend to love more of the uh, romance and social aspects and the more hardcore fans who just really want a painfully difficult Fire Emblem to ram their heads against. Yeah, a lot of Fire Emblem's uh, hardcore fan base stems from the fact that it is a pretty old series at this point. I believe the first game came out on the Famicom, maybe 1991, 1990. Um so it's been around for quite a long time at this point, and it did not become available in the U.S. until Fire Emblem 7 on the GBA. It came out in 2003, and a lot of that was a product of the fact that Marth and Roy caught on when they made it into Super Smash Bros. Melee, which in it itself was a bit of an upset. Um, when it the reason that it attracted a lot of people's attention was, as you already mentioned, the permanent death aspects, the fantasy, the the fact that you could pair up characters and have them support one another. And it really felt like an epic adventure. And not only that, but Fire Emblem predated Final Fantasy Tactics and Tactics Ogre for, by several years. So it was a really novel approach to strategy uh, that you hadn't really seen in console games up until that point. This marrying of of strategy and RPG, two aspects that go really well together. But despite the similarities to Final Fantasy Tactics, Fire Emblem is really quite different from Final Fantasy Tactics. I think a, a fact that you can probably appreciate, Mike. No, it is a very different game. I was actually kind of, um, mostly because I had forgotten Awakening, I guess, uh, and I've played Tactics again since then. Uh, how complex Fire Emblem really is. Like, systems on top of systems, you know, there's the weapon triangle, and there's weapon ranks, and every weapon has specific effects, so you can't just, like, say, hey, here's the newest sword that is of rank C, I'm going to start using that because it may have an effect that that just doesn't work out for you. Or and, your characters might not be able to even use it because yeah. they don't have a high enough rank. And then there's classes, and then there's promotions, and then there's the the weird seals and sharing classes. And, ah, like, I had forgotten how really complex Fire Emblem is uh, and yet to some other games. And yet it's not that complex as long as you remember basically the golden rule, which is make sure you level up your character to 20 so that they get all the way up and then promote them. Um, and then a lot of that is a matter of just kind of I, I guess either using a guide or kind of sussing out what their ideal class will be, and then you can move along just fine. Uh, it gets a little tricky, as you said, when choosing different classes for your characters. Um, did you promote anybody to Dread Knight? Uh, or Dread Fighter? That's 
that's one of the extra classes that's not from either side, right? I, I didn't yeah. actually use any of those. Why? Are they okay. good? Uh, it's interesting just because when you promote it, um, th- initially when you make the class change, it's they're powerful but the weapons that they they can only use e-class weapons initially so you're kind of like you feel a little bit stuck and then also a little weirder is the fact that they don't top out at level 20 like they keep going i think they go all the way up to level 40 so there's no promotional aspect to it so that that aspect is a little different than the traditional classes um i ended up promoting one of my I ended up changing the class of one of my character's kids because I already had two lords um, Norian royalties or whatever and I didn't need a third one but I did need someone who could kind of be a Swiss army knife and the dread fighter ended up being really handy in that way because they can use like the ninja like the shurikens and that kind of thing and the axes and the swords, which kind of allowed her to hit every part of the weapons triangle. Yeah, you know how I found out it ended up being really useful to me, and I, and I just said it on Twitter, uh, Felicia, the maid, I don't know, uh, uh, I guess you played a female character, so you would get the butler instead? Yeah, I got Jacob. Uh, but the, at, at least early on, uh your only other healer, at least on my side, was the Shrine Main who can only use staves. So mm. she's completely useless in combat. Uh, whereas the Maid can use staves and starts with knives. So uh, she ended up being uh, probably one of my more useful characters. Basically, any character that can use more than one weapon uh, tended to get preferred status. Uh, over the single weapon characters i initially so the ninja is kind of a new class um previous in previous fire emblems you've had a thief and the thief would promote up into assassin but the thief seems to have been retired for fire emblem fates um and instead you have the ninja and the ninja like can throw knives as we were already discussing uh but it's a little confusing because essentially it adds another component to the weapons triangle. So the shuriken can beat swords, but it's weak against axes and lances. And I think they're also good at mate against mages. I could be wrong. Um, but so since so many enemies, uh, since you see so many sword users and so many mages, um, at least in conquest, uh, ninjas, especially once they get up to higher levels, are very useful. Um, I got a, I got one character, uh, kind of later in Conquest. And even though my main protagonist already had a husband, um, I ended up pairing her up with him and pairing her, my protagonist's husband up with one of the kids. And this new character who was a master ninja, like, just right away, like, oh my god, he, the mobility, and the fact that he always attacks twice, and the fact that he can do status effects, like poison enemies, so useful. So that adds, like, an extra degree to it. And then there's the fact that you can buy, like, armor, like, armor killer, and, like, worm killer, which 
allows you to characters who would normally be completely useless against, say, a heavily armored knight or general to like kill them in one shot. And there was like one mission in Conquest where you absolutely have to buy an armor slayer and a beast killer because it is a really hard mission and you need every advantage that you can possibly get. I think I gave armor slayer to my samurai who became a sword master because the early samurai skill is duelist blow which uh, makes you attack first if you start the attack which is super useful uh if you're using armor slayer uh usually I, I think that was hana who was my glass cannon just like go out there and get yourself possibly killed but make sure that that guy doesn't have any armor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that can be really useful, yeah, the, the ability to knock off armor. Um, and also it leaves them in their underwear, which is kind of funny. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very, I find it complex to the point that I actually had a sheet to cover certain things. Like I always forgot which side of the weapon triangle was which, so I just wrote it down. And I just kept it near me. Um, but if I had to say it, like I gave it a 4.5, if I had a real issue with the game, it's the fact that there's no shared experience. Um, you can pair up, and occasionally your support and pair up or adjacent attacker is uh, will get some experience, but it's paltry compared to actually doing the combat yourself. And, oh man, a tactics game of any sort without any sort of shared experience to get lower level characters up to where your the rest of your party is, is just, ah, it was so annoying. Yeah, the result was that I just never, ever got my songstress up in level. <laughs> She's still like level four, like at the end of the game. Yeah, and that that's one of those, because you never want to leave her out uh to attack anything because she'll probably die but otherwise she's not gaining any experience so it, yeah no it was it's super annoying uh, especially when i started doing the paralogs on a regular basis and they would always come in much lower uh than my current squad and i was just like ah oh, i hate you so much yeah it's especially the case in conquest <laughs> where you don't have random missions to level up your characters in. So a lot of the time in a ran a regular map, like I'll just find myself being like, oh, you're down to like one hit point. Perfect. I can sneak in you and get the killing blow. Great. Okay. You got some exp like a nice healthy dose of XP from that. Like it gets kind of artificial in how you have to level up your characters. Um, and like, it's easy to get stuck in that mindset to the detriment of the actual tactics. Uh, there was at least one mission where, like, I was struggling and struggling and struggling, and finally I said, F it! And I didn't even care that I was just relying on my my strongest characters. I just wanted to get through the mission. And that meant uh, leaning really heavily on my general, uh, who was my strongest character, uh out she's really she's weak to magic but against physical attacks she's practically invincible 
and Xander, who is the main Norian royalty, and a couple other characters, and just blowing through the level. And I still had to be careful, but I was able to get through the level because I wasn't trying to artificially level up the rest of my crew. And as a consequence, I was able to make it through. But if it is possible, it is easy, I agree, to kind of get stuck in that artificial mindset of leveling up your characters without shared experience. Yeah, like if they just made it so that the pair up system shared experience evenly, that would like solve it, solve the problem almost immediately. But as it stands, you you kind of have to hedge and like run up and switch characters and then let the low level character get a hit in and hope that they don't die in the counter attack. Uh, yeah, no, it's just. I, <laughs> I sort of wonder if they did that on purpose though, just to make sure that a party wouldn't get too over leveled, um, and that they would force you to use your entire party and not just lean on like three characters. I could see that. I could see that. But then the, the flip side is you don't use those extra characters because they're not leveled. I mean, well, mine were leveled because I have extra challenges to draw on. Like when I found out that I could, like, uh, in Birthright, the extra challenge levels that you can uh, tackle uh, refill over time. But you can also just spend gold to cause the game to make new ones. So you never actually run out of levels. <laughs> wow. So you can just be over leveled like crazy in birthright. Oh god, yes. No, I'm I'm I, I was at least two to three levels ahead of whoever I was fighting. So in conquest it's not like you never have extra like missions to do because when you get kids you have the paralogues to be able to and that will give you some extra XP. And then also your uh, castle will be invaded occasionally. And that is more XP. And we'll get into the castles in a little bit. So there is that. But by and large, it's pretty strict with um, the XP, the amount of XP you get. So as a consequence, you have to kind of go with the old Fire Emblem tactic of make sure you kill all of the enemies on the map so that you can get as much XP as humanly possible unless you're on like a a time a, a timed mission and uh just make sure that you level everybody up equally and usually usually it's not so bad it only got a little frustrating a bit later because um my kids were fine but a couple of my characters ended up falling a little bit behind and so I had to work extra hard to get them promoted and there's a point in Conquest where, like, the enemies just all start being promoted units. And if your character is not promoted yet, you can have a really hard time doing, like, any damage to them, which makes it doubly hard to level them up. Uh, there, there were a few characters that I just had to, uh, like, straight up abandon because there was just no way that I was going to be able to get them to a high enough level. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, I just I find that kind of thing annoying because I'm I'm the guy that usually will uh, jump in something like Disgaea or something, and which also doesn't have a completely 
excellent shared experience system and, and make sure that I have a nice full squad so I can switch in and out as I need to. And uh, you're kind of uh, not prevented, but constrained from doing that in Fire Emblem Fates. If I may, I think the main difference between, say, Fire Emblem and Final Fantasy Tactics is that Final Fantasy Tactics, like most of the strategy takes place off the field when it comes to, say, getting equipment for your character, uh, choosing which classes they have, but also like the abilities that they have, um, making sure that they have the abilities and the spells that you want on the field. You'll you'll forgive me. Um, my own memories of Final Fantasy Tactics are a tiny bit hazy right now, bec- despite the fact that I recently finished it a couple years ago. Uh, I I just remember that there was a lot heavier customization going into Final Fantasy Tactics and a much greater capacity for min maxing, and it can get to the point where you can like storm a battlefield and basically just wipe it out without even having the enemies do any damage to you because you're so strong. Whereas Fire Emblem, like a lot more of the tactics, the strategies happening on the battlefield is much more of a tactical game. And as the point that I made in my review of Conquest is that that puts a lot more pressure on the actual map design because you're not just, you're not sitting there lovingly crafting these characters and equipping them and then going out and just brute forcing a map full of characters, you're going through a gauntlet, essentially. Like, in some ways, you're going through a dungeon. You're going through, like, for example, you might go through a castle. You're getting treasures and that kind of thing. Um, you have to use, you, you have to be very aware of, like, where choke, choke points are and everything. And that's certainly the case in Final Fantasy Tactics, which uses elevation and all of that. But I feel like that's doubly important in Fire Emblem. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. It's a uh, it's a slightly different and actually really unique uh, sort of tactics game out there. Uh, and I've played a lot of tactics games. I think I yeah I reviewed Devil Survivor too. So that was another uh, also very odd and unique tactics game, tactics RPG. I feel like. Fire Emblem has always been a much faster game than, say, Final Fantasy Tactics or Devil Survivor. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I can burn through a Fire Emblem match, unless I'm turtling. Like, sometimes I'll turtle for a little bit just to see what's going to happen. Um, but, like, the challenge ones, I can probably finish those in, like, 15 minutes. Yes. Uh, your characters move more quickly. The actual actions happen more quickly. Um, you, I feel like there's a lot more enemies on a given map than you'll usually find in Final Fantasy Tactics. So it's just, it's very much its own thing. And I think that's great. But before we go any further, I sort of feel like we should talk a little bit about the differences between Birthright and Conquest, just because, I mean, we've already alluded to them, but I feel like there's been a lot of confusion about how exactly these two games work together and what exactly the strategy is or what, yeah, what exactly which one you should want. So it's not Pokemon. It's not two sides of the same story. It's more like somebody compared it to Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons, the the Zelda game, 
where essentially you have two very different games, two two like set different sets of rosters, uh, different levels, different story, the whole shebang, and essentially conquest and birthright they stand alone. They are their own game. So if you want a more awakening type experience, then you should get birthright. If you want an old school Fire Emblem experience that's like more difficult, then you should pick up Conquest. And honestly, I think that you can have a pretty satisfying experience no matter which version you get. Uh, even if you just get one version, that game can keep you quite busy for a long time because essentially, like, Fire Emblem Conquest, like if it were just Fire Emblem Conquest, it'd be a great game. But it's been split into two separate games and with one story, essentially. Um, you hit level five, you like you do a prologue, you hit a level five, and then you do a route split and it carries over to the next game, to whichever game you choose. Right. Now... Mike, you're explaining like how exactly like these two games work together in terms of save data. Could you like kind of go into that a little bit? All right. So save data and version. So so the way it works is um, you can either buy uh, Birthright or Conquest if you didn't get the special edition. That's forty bucks right there. And whichever one you buy, you get three save slots. Now, if you buy, say, Birthright and you want to play Conquest, Conquest is a $20 DLC that is an add-on which gives you all of the Conquest content and another three save slots. And then Revelations, which is the third version, is another $20 which also comes with its uh, another three save slots. So you and I, with the special edition, got nine total slave slots. Um, people who are not uh, using special edition or just buying the regular retail edition, you get uh, three save slots per path. And if you're going out there and you're going to buy Birthright, and conquests like the physical versions don't the idea the way that they want you to do it is to buy one and then buy the dlc for the other two paths because if you do it that way if you say buy a physical copy of birthright and a physical copy of conquest that's forty dollars a piece so you're up at eighty bucks then Revelations is another 20 bucks. That's $100 right there. Whereas if you do it the way Nintendo wants you to do it, it's $80 for everything, which incidentally was also the price of the special edition. Right. So the best way to do it is to buy either a collect, uh, sorry, a digital version of, say, Birthright, and then you can get Conquest as um, as a piece of DLC with Revelations coming up for it free. Is that right? No. Both, whatever <laughs> is the first DLC you buy and Revelations are 20 bucks. 
Okay, Revelations is $20 and Conquest is $20. Correct. If you bought uh, Birthright. So that's an extra 40 bucks. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's kind of the the optimal way to do it or buy one uh buy one physical copy and then get the DLC whichever works. But the other thing is when you are choosing like let's say you buy Birthright and you and you get your you get to level six and you want to make your big choice to go over to con- uh, and you end up choosing conquest. It will actually take you to the eShop and let you get conquest, download it, and then you can just keep going. So that's the way you want to do it as well. It, it it's all actually pretty streamlined. Um, once you actually get the game, it's a little less confusing. But I can understand why people might have been a little thrown off, especially with. The inclusion of the third path, um, the DLC uh, revelation, because it's like, okay, so how does this all work together? But hopefully, hopefully that wasn't too confusing of a of an explanation. <laughs> all right, so let's get back. So I'm honestly curious, um, what are the maps like in Birthright? Because when we were discussing this uh, off the air, you were kind of alluding to the the maps being very straightforward in Birthright. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, the occasional choke point, but usually it's uh, you are on one side of the map, or you are in the center of the map, and the enemies are on the other side, or all around you, and go get them. Uh, that's pretty much it. Hmm. Um, it gets vaguely interesting uh, when you have, say, like the Dragon Vein points, which are, are little spots on each battlefield where you can uh, uh, change the battlefield, like creating bridges or healing areas or anything like that. But for the most part, the, the maps aren't, aren't super complex in Birthright. Um, I'm not sure how complex they were for you. They were pretty complex. <laughs> they could be pretty complex, I should say. Um, there were some really interesting ones in there. Um, there's one where it's a timed mission. Like, you have to finish it in 20, uh, 20, 20 turns. And there's a boss up top with some enemies. And then there's a boss on the bottom with some enemies. And the process of, like, like deciding how you're going to split up your party and get down there fast enough and get both bosses is really intense, to be honest. And I spent quite a long time on that mission. That was the one where I was like, you definitely want armor killers and beast killer weapons because otherwise, like, there's a, a, a there's like an entire room full of generals. And if you don't have that armor killer, you're going to be in deep trouble. So, um, and then what I ended up doing actually was, uh, pairing up all of my characters beforehand and sending them in on one side rather than having them come in from two sides and basically just being like, okay, my general can take on the generals down here. So she's going to go down here and everybody else is going to go up top and deal with the stuff up here. And then that should give me enough time to get all the way back down to the bottom and deal with the generals who are guarding like the prison where um 
some people that I need to rescue are waiting. Uh, and then the generals were super difficult because the, bo- the, the bottom boss was very difficult because I couldn't do a ton of damage to them, but they could do a lot of damage to me. And then because they were paired up, like if you're, if you have two characters paired up, there's a very good chance that when you go in for the killing blow, the second character will block the attack. And so on a couple occasions, I got completely screwed when I was like, okay, I'm going to get the killing blow now. Oh no, I did not get the killing blow. Crap. I'm not going to be able to kill the second character in time. And they just killed my mage. God damn it. So there are a lot of moments like that in Conquest. Yeah, and see, Con- and Conquest also has more varied objectives. Uh, most of them in uh, Birthright are kill all enemies uh, or kill the boss. I think there may have been one or two. Uh, there was one where you had to escape with the protagonist. Uh, but for the most part, no, it was just defeat all enemies or defeat the boss and that's it. Good job. Um, it, it It's not that different in Conquest. Um, there are some timed objectives. There are the kill all of the bad guys and objectives. There's There's one where you have to survive for like 20 turns, which is actually pretty intense. Um, it's really early on in Conquest, and God, that mission just kicked my butt. Like, I'm going to say that a lot with a lot of these missions. Just like, I was like, oh my God, help me. Uh, I think my favorite mission of the bunch, even though it's one of the hardest, was that you have to start at the bottom of the screen and get to the top. And there are enemies chasing you, and you have to escape at the top of the screen. And as you're going, there's like just this gauntlet of enemies, but you can freeze them by using the dragon veins. So, and when they're frozen in place, they can still attack. It's just that they can't run up to you and attack. So there are certain enemies that they have to be next to you to attack. So it's like, okay, I don't have to deal with these guys. But then there are these guys who can throw rocks at you and do a lot of damage. So you have to stay out of their range, but also freeze everybody and then be able to take them out. And they're really strong. Like these are very strong rock creatures. So you have to use, so you have to very carefully plan everything out to make sure that A, you're hitting the dragon veins and B, you're not putting your characters in a position where they're going to get hit by three rocks and killed on the next turn. And it took me a while to figure that one out, but it was, I would say an exhilarating map um, that ended with a really narrow escape for my heroes. And I can't remember another Fire Emblem map quite like that. So I was pretty impressed with that. And I was like, hey, okay. Um, They're like kind of stretching out and having some fun with the map designs. And I really appreciated it. Um, And then the map right after that is like this assault on a heavily fortified like Hoshido castle with tons of like narrow choke points and enemies in fortified positions. So I'm like going... Oh boy, how am I going to conquer this? Okay, how are we going to do this? So I would, I would say that just from a pure tactics standpoint, uh, the maps of Conquest are kind of the star of the show. And if you want a more intense experience, you should definitely get that one. Uh, having said that, 
if you're feeling kind of intimidated right now, uh, there's casual mode, <laughs> which will return your characters to uh, return your characters to life if they die at the end of the mission, which makes it pretty easy to brute force a lot of these maps. And then if you're really like stuck, you can always use Phoenix mode, which will bring them back to life right away, which is essentially a cheat code. So I'm kind of curious, Mike, what's your position on using classic mode? Well, I, I'd say that uh, if you really want to beat up yourself and lose <laughs> your characters, by all means, play classic mode, enjoy your permadeath. Uh, I've never been the kind of person that enjoys permadeath in games. Um, so, like, in, in when it would happen in tactics, uh, tactics permadeath was... Uh, when your character died, you had three rounds, three full rounds to uh, get them back to life, or they turned into a crystal or a chest, and they were gone forever. Uh, if that ever happened, I, I usually reset. So no, no, I'm not a... Uh, I understand why they have it, and again, that's why I like the fact that they allow options, um, but it's not for me. I So this is what I'm going to say about classic mode. Um, I think... People should, I think people should do it because that's kind of the way that Fire Emblem is meant to be played. And I mean, it's your choice, obviously, but I think that, I think that if you just, uh, let it, if you just put on casual mode and you, uh, don't even worry about whether your characters are going to die, then you can really easily brute force almost every map and, it it's actually kind of a piece of cake just to get through. I mean, because you don't have to worry about your positioning or anything. And if you lose a character, oh well, um, you will probably make it all the way through anyway, um, barring losing your hero, which is an automatic game over. So I've, I feel like in that respect, um, it becomes more of a grind. Whereas if you're playing on classic mode, you have to think really carefully all the time about your next move. And there's no, there's no like uh, net below you. You, it auto saves if you lose a character. So you have to restart the mission if you don't want to lose them. And sometimes, you know, you find yourself in a position where you go, you know what? This is a long mission. This is really hard. I didn't particularly care about that character. Um, RIP. And that actually happened to me like relatively early on in Conquestor. I was like, oh, gah, ding. Well, I guess you're dead now. And then, you know, they're gone. And you feel kind of bad about that, but that's casualties of war. And it was the same with XCOM. Um, I've always kind of appreciated that in XCOM 2, you'll, you can end up losing a lot of your characters. And when you go back and you look at the, the wall and you see like the, the memorial of the characters who, who died, uh, it's an emotional thing. So Uh, uh, I think classic mode elevates it. I find when I go into a game like Darkest Dungeon or XCOM, uh, I haven't touched XCOM 2 yet. I've picked it up, but I haven't played it. Um, I go in with a different mindset that those characters are going to die. Like, uh, also when I'm playing uh, Sunless Sea or FTL, 
Um, but I don't know. In, in Fire Emblem, you get really attached to the characters, and I, I just don't want to see any of them go. So I'm just like, nah, I can't do it. Sorry. I feel like with Fire Emblem, that has a lot to do with the fact that, I mean, they're characters, right? With writing and names. They aren't just randomly generated characters who are a collection of stats that you apply your own stories to. Yeah. So that probably makes a big difference, right? Yeah, it's it's not like, uh, I mean, like back in the day with Shining Force, you had characters with names and portraits. But, I mean, after a certain point, like, oh, that guy died? Eh, whatever. Um, but for Fire Emblem Fates, you got conversations... Uh, a ton of conversations like everyone every character has multiple conversations with every other character that all highlight certain facts about them so you you if you actually dive into all the support conversations in that aspect you kind of get really attached to most of your characters Oh, for sure. Yeah. You get attached to that relationship, too. Yeah. Like, I have a couple extra guys, because um, I use the prison. Um, yeah. So uh, okay. I have some extra dudes that are just around, but I, I feel about those guys uh, the way I, I'd say feel about, you know, Shining Force characters. Like, ah, Conrad died. That's a shame. Yeah, I was kind of that way in Awakening when I added, I actually recruited Jeremy's character through Street Street Pass, and he was an outstanding Wyvern Knight for my team, but he couldn't have support characters with anybody or support conversations with anybody. So he might, and you know, he didn't have a story or anything, so he might as well have just been a throwaway character. And so it was fine, but. I felt absolutely no attachment to that character, whereas you definitely do feel attachment to the characters in Fire Emblem Fates. And I can appreciate that there are plenty of people who don't want to deal with permanent death. I know that that was what turned a lot of people off the GBA games when they first came out here. And ultimately, that may have been what kind of pushed Awakening over the top for a lot of people, was that permanent death became optional. And... Personally, I I think that people should just give it a try. Try out classic mode. It's not that scary. It's okay. Um, but I can appreciate that there are people who just want to experience the story and not feel stressed out about losing characters. But on that note, I'm kind of curious what you think of the story, Mike. Uh, so I have my own thoughts on Conquest's story, but I don't know much about Birthright's story. Uh, what were your thoughts? Uh, I mean... It's a pretty solid story. The characters are really the highlight. Um, I guess I kind of wonder, what is it like uh, fighting for King Garon, who, as far as I can tell, is comically evil? Like, is there some sort of explanation as to why he's well, not, you... or why, uh, I guess, the Nor War royal family continues to work with him i so i'll say this uh a common trope in fire emblem is a corrupt leader who is ruling over an otherwise good-hearted kingdom and subverting it from the top and oftentimes uh that leader is being controlled by supernatural forces or something 
Um, so make that of that what you will. I'll just say that this is a pretty common trope in Fire Emblem in saying that uh, enemy leaders, um, you'll often come upon the corrupt royal who is ruling over uh, and corrupting the uh, good, an otherwise good-hearted kingdom. So, so there's that. Um, as for what happens when you pick the conquest side, you go back and King Garon's like, uh, okay, you came back. That's odd. Um, hi, uh, you're a traitor. I'm going to kill you. And you have to, from that point on, um, he kind of sets out to make your life a living hell. Um, and your character is trying to, like, your character is not on King Garon's side and neither is his kids. But they're trying to kind of work within the system, I guess you could say, and find a way to subvert his orders from within. And people like Xander and Leo will be like, oh, yeah, like, he gives us these crazy orders all the time. Like, kill this guy and kill that guy and be awful to this person and burn this village. And we find just, you know, ways to make sure that uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. Like, as an example, there's a, there's a point where he's like, kill all the singers in this one city. And you're like, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And Leo's like, shut up. God. Okay. Yes, we're going to do that. But then whenever they would find a singer, Leo would be like, no, I'm going to kill them myself. Get out of here. Get out of here. Run. Uh, so that's how it kind of goes. And so you kind of learn how to play the game, as it were. Um, I was joking my review that, if the protagonists were in Game of Thrones, they would lose their head in roughly five minutes because, like, she's constant, or in this case, my character is a she, walks up to King Garen and is like, what are you doing? That's completely crazy pants and insane. Why are you doing that? And, like, the rest of the siblings like, shut up. God, why are you being so naive? Um, and to their credit, the character eventually becomes a bit less naive about what exactly is going on. But there are a lot of times where I was kind of face palming um at her like seemingly inability to grasp the fact that no king garen is a complete jerk and no he's not going to change his mind he is really that awful yeah i I was i was wondering about that i'm also wondering uh from the the opposite side uh not from i guess a plot more of a romance aspect uh do you feel that whenever they introduce characters the characters were all very forward in their intense liking of you um no because um i guess like playing as a female character on the north side a lot of the cast members on the north side are like kind of these quiet outlaws and renegades and things like that and as you build your relationship with them they fall in love with you but otherwise i wouldn't say that they were super like immediately into my character i assume that from the birthright side if you're playing as a male character the the lady characters are basically throwing themselves at you uh, most of the the starting ones, uh, as you get a little bit deeper into it, uh, the extra characters, usually the vassals, because uh, the 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 way it 
works is, you know, every member of the royal family usually has two vassals on, on birthright side. Same with the uh, same with conquest side. Yeah. The vassals seem to be a little bit more interested in whoever they're supposed to be serving before you talk to them like maybe once or twice. And then they're like, oh, my God. But like that, like initial like burst, like probably I'd say in the first like maybe 10 chapters, like everyone's just like, that's the that's the guy right there. He's he's the best. I, I really mm. want to get with him. yeah no i see what you mean um and i I will say that if you're playing on the female side no matter which version you're playing jacob ends up being your butler and jacob is like a character straight out of a a shoujo anime right where (laughs) like you basically see the sparkles around him whenever he's talking to you and it's clearly the game's kind of nudging you and suggesting that you really want to be with Jacob. Um, or uh, if you're on the male side, Felicia. And I ended up marrying um, Niles, who is uh, an outlaw with an eye patch. He looks like he's straight out of Gundam Crossbone. You married the bisexual character. Oh, he's bisexual? I think so. I want to say. Oh, right on. Well, I ended up marrying him. And then once you get married, like initially he's kind of like in his own world and he's kind of like seems kind of amused that you're talking to him. But by the time like you actually get married to them. So in your castle, you have your private quarters and you can go meet with your partner and talk to them. And the talking consists of a first person look at them and they'll go, I've been waiting for this for so long. I'm so happy to be with you. Kissy, 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 kissy. And you're like, okay, this is overwhelming. And in the Japanese version, there are actually like mini games that the Nintendo of America actually ended up cutting. And you can build up heart a heart meter with them in this area. And I guess in the Japanese version, the, that unlocked more mini games. Um, I'm not entirely sure what the hearts do in the American version. Maybe nothing. Maybe they just get more and more in love with you as you build up those hearts. I'm uh, not sure. A version of the mini game is available. Um, right, you blow off the bubbles. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> they've like been taking a bath or something, and it's like okay, whatever. Um, it, it there's also a hot spring in your castle that you can go and meet characters, and it's mostly an excuse to look at your characters in bikinis. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I just looked. Yeah, Niles is the uh, the male bisexual character. You, you oh you sweet, romance the bisexual character. Of course, I did. <laughs> I always seem to end up with the bisexual characters in these games. Um, and then he ends up if if you do that, you end up having two kids. You have Kana, who is this incredibly annoying little um, lordling kid who I don't know, like I can't even describe him. But he's tiny. And then you have Nina, who is... She's kind of cool. Like, she, like, follows um, Niles' life of crime. And will... uh, And so, like, and if you pair her up with Niles, then they'll, like, get into these big arguments. Because one of the conceits of the game is that when you have a kid, you stash them into this other realm where time is accelerated so that they grow up pretty quickly and become fighters and everything. 
And she's pissed off because from her perception, Niles has been avoiding her for years and years and years, even though it's only been a couple weeks. It's kind of interesting. I I, I actually did found I, uh, that was my other issue. I didn't particularly enjoy the, the, the child system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it particularly added anything for them to be the children of the characters because it was fairly limited uh, in the number of children. Uh, so I, I, I kind of felt like, oh, well, that's really just another fighter. They really didn't have to go through all the hoops to have the extra, you know, dimensional thing to age them. And yeah, usually they're usually they're more powerful, though. And that's the only way to get like, say, more nor royals, for example. Yeah. So there is that. Um, And I think one thing that is kind of fun is to have your fighters like pair up and then have kids and then you get additional support conversations out of that. Uh, so there is that aspect and you get different kids depending on who, on who you pair them up with, I think. So I I think that adds a degree of replayability. I could see that. I could see that. I just, I I guess I I wanted more from it. I wanted more like, you know, like I I said in my review, like a fantasy star, more like a record, the the very first record of Agorist War, um, where they just sort of did more with it. What did they do in Record of Agorist War? uh, So Agorist War, you have your main character, then you have three uh, suitors, and... uh, and then the rest of your party. And uh, depending on who you end up with, you have a kid, and then it moves forward a generation, but it does the same thing. So you have the kid is now the new main character, you got three more suitors, and a different party. So you're sort of... And, and um, Fantasy Star did much the same thing, where basically you're, 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 there's a sense that you're moving towards something. That, that the children is a further generation. Uh, and it actually tends to help because it makes you feel like whatever conflict that you're dealing with can't be taken care of uh, by a single group of people. So, mm. Yeah, it's kind of that feeling that you have in Dragon Quest V where you have a, a campaign that or a story that takes place over the course of like 25 years. And your character ends up getting married and having kids and the kids become party members. And I feel like it does a much better job of capturing the the kind of the epic nature of the storytelling in that regard, as opposed to, well, uh, we need to find a way to get these kids on the team. Uh, they artificially age. Okay. Yeah, that's that's why I like it. It's fairly limited. There's only a certain number of characters that can have kids. There are a pretty small number of kids. And uh, it's just kind of like, oh, here they are, and we're moving forward now. Yes. All right. Before uh, we can, like, we kind of wrap up, um, one thing I did want to know, uh, is it fair to say that Birthright's story is fairly straightforward, where, like, you have a clear villain, and it's like, okay, we're going to go kill this villain, he's real bad? Uh, yeah, no, there's no, like, real super twists, uh, in Birthright. Uh, I, I expect Revelations will be where the twists are. 
yeah, I'm interested to play Revelation. I'm probably going to do a separate review of that one once I actually play it. Just because, you know, I like to do that kind of thing. The other thing I was wondering is, how much crossover is there between Birthright and Conquest? For example, is there a scene where um, the two characters, uh, the two sets of royals end up having dinner? Uh, yes. Okay. I'm wondering, like, how similar, like, some of the the missions are in that regard. I know that I'm pretty sure that there's certain that there's some crossover in terms of the cast. Does Kaze is Kaze in Birthright? Does he end up following you? Uh, Kaze is in Birthright. I, you get Kaze from the beginning. I think Kaze is like uh, Felicia uh, or Jacob in that you always have them. Okay. Um, did you get Rinka? Or, no. Okay. Rinka? Who's Rinka? Uh, she was one of the, the the people that you caught in the beginning. Was she a maid? Uh, no, she was a barbarian. Oh, then no. Huh. That's surprising. No. I do know that there's a mission in Conquest where you actually... Like, there are multiple missions in Conquest where the bosses are actually characters on the birthright side. Um... Like, there's a foxy kid. Like, there's a kid who's, like, half fox, half human. Who's a character in Birthright, I think. And I know for a fact that he's a boss in Conquest. Uh, let me see. One of the... the, the are you talking the, the two Kitsune character? Where What was his name? There's a kid who... There's a guy who's a wolf. And then there's a Kitsune character. Yeah. Wait, is there a mission where you have to go through, like... In Birthright, where you have to go through um, a beast forest or something? Uh, yes. Cause and you have to kill them all? Yeah, you have to fight a wolf, dude. Okay. On the conquest side, you have to fight a fox. Okay. That's what I thought. So, there is some crossover. They did cheat a little bit, it seems like. Yeah, I figured they probably would with some of the uh, the, the characters. Um, and some of the different sides. Uh, okay. I'm curious to play Birthright um, and see like just how much crossover there actually is between the two versions. Um, I will say that I'm glad that I ended up pinking Conquest because the game really makes you want to go to Birthright because it establishes pretty early that <laughs> the, the king is evil and... <laughs> And it makes it clear that which side is the good side. But at the same time, like, I think it adds a certain amount of tension knowing that you're working for the bad guy and trying to subvert him from within. And he keeps giving crazy orders to your character and you're having to figure out how to, you know, defy them without openly defying him and dying. So that's fun. Yeah, I was just surprised. I was like, I mean, like, like he's... He was comically evil. Like I was just like, "Wow, you are you were just one hundred percent like evil, evil, evil." Yes. So, but apparently, he used to be nice. Well, he deserved to die, and he got what was coming to him. Oh, spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> All right, last thing. Um, what do you think of the castle? Um, the castle being like the hub area where you can um it's kind of a new thing 
where you can build different shops and you can get like a mess hall and an arena and like various shops and everything. What did you think of that? It was cute wandering around it. Uh, I kind of, uh, like I said, review, not quite sure uh, what the, how to get the clock to move forward. Is it per battle? Is it synced to your actual clock? I uh, think it's per battle. That's what I thought. That's why I said. Yeah, like, I like you I, do a, you do a battle, and it goes from morning to afternoon to evening, and then continues. Yeah. So uh, that's that's that was pretty much why I was like, uh, I said in the review, I was like, it's it, the idea is that you check it on a regular basis. Um, it just seemed to move really quick for me, probably because I was uh, grinding out challenge battles. Ah, uh, I gotcha. So okay. I, I never really had, you probably had more problems with the DVP, uh, whereas I always had a surplus. I I always only had one DVP, like, and I would spend it immediately. So it was just like, I finish, I finish a level. Oh, okay. Now I can build something new. I finish a level. Okay. I can build something new. Yeah. No, I was, uh, the way I was playing whenever I would have uh, new buildings on lock, I would build all of them immediately because I had surplus DVP. Oh man, there's some buildings that I still haven't built. Like I never got around to building the Iron Herar um, hill, uh, hall where you can get, I guess, uh, your friend's characters via street pass. Uh, uh, because I was too busy spending my DP to upgrade, like say the shops. Right. So, uh, I one thing that I kind of highlighted in my review that I really liked was the the blacksmith, um, because it helps address the fact that sometimes you can change a character's class, but they can only use E level weapons, which makes it kind of hard because um, they're kind of weak. Um, so what I would do is I would go and buy like four bronze swords, and then just turn my sapphires into the the ore that i needed and then you combine two uh, you combine the four into two upgraded weapons and then you combine them again and then you can get a really powerful version of that uh basic weapon and you can name them so i ended up um doing the taking like four bronze daggers and naming it a shiv and that made um my master ninja like quite powerful because all of a sudden like he was able to just wreck anything that he was strong against. So I was like, oh, okay. So the blacksmith like really helps rectify that kind of hole in the design. That is one aspect that I like. And I also like the mess hall. <laughs> Did you end up cooking a lot of like meals for your characters? Uh, I cooked a few um, just for the per battle bonuses, but not a ton because like I said, I was already over leveled. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, that's very useful in conquest to be able to get that that um stat upgrade and plus it's cute because you have different members of your party like behind the counter cooking things for you so <laughs> i was kind of amused anyway so what are your final thoughts on fire emblem fits uh it is a great game uh especially birthright uh like i said in the review uh is definitely a successor to the style that Intelligent Systems started with Awakening, which is uh, very heavy on the social aspects and a little bit more uh, fan-friendly. 
in its tactics. Uh, you can make it a much harder game by playing on Lunatic, turning on Permadeath, and not using, say, some of the Dragon Veins or Grinding. Uh, or you can go the easy route. Uh, and I really enjoy that flexibility. Um, as for me, I really enjoyed my time with Final Fire Emblem Fates Conquest. I thought the story was just okay, but I found that I really enjoyed the challenge of the various maps. And it, it felt like a, more of an old school Fire Emblem experience, which is kind of what I was looking for. Um, I think that they have kind of an impossible task in trying to please everybody. And maybe by splitting it into multiple parts, this is the only way that they can really do it. Because there is an imperative from Nintendo, be more mass market. But the base of this series is like hardcore tactics fans. And you can't please everybody. But I think that they've done a pretty good job of splitting the difference. Uh, is it worth spending 80 bucks on like three different versions or three different games? Eh, maybe. It depends on how much of a Fire Emblem fan you are. But I think that even if you just pick up one, you can have a really satisfying experience. Yeah, you'll, you'll get an entire Fire Emblem experience out of a single game. Uh, exactly, yeah. It's not like it's just half of a game, you know. They They did produce a ton of content, like... Conquest by itself has as many missions as Awakening, plus a little more. And the same goes for Birthright. And I will say that having uh, gotten through Conquest now, I'm actually very curious to play Birthright. So, in that respect, I would definitely recommend Fire Emblem Fates, and it sounds like you do too, Mike. I do indeed. Right on. And we're back with Nadia Oxford, our staff writer, who recently reviewed Project Cross Zone 2, a game that I admittedly passed up on because I did not have any expectations for it whatsoever. I was not a big fan of the original, but Nadia actually ended up liking it quite a bit. She gave it a 4 out of 5 on her mm-hmm. review, and that kind of puts her in line with Uh, I'd say a lot of people, there are plenty of people who are like, yeah, I like Project Cross Zone and whatever. So uh, I'm kind of like picking your brain. I'm like interested (laughs) to know what you're, what you like kind of saw in this game. Well, um, I didn't play the first one, but I seem to recall you didn't like it very much. No, I didn't like it. (laughs) Uh, what, well, I can put it this way. Um, it seems to average about a B. Mm-hmm. And even though parts of it are excellent, I can totally understand why it would average a B or maybe even a little bit less. Um, what did you find about the first one that really annoyed you? It was a grind, to be perfectly honest. It there yeah. was nothing below the surface. So, like, there's no customization of the characters. Uh, I don't think that you can even choose who you pair characters up with. So, what it boils down to is equip an item and send your characters into battle and then do the same dial combos over and over and over again. Yeah, I'll be 100% honest with you. That's pretty much what you're getting with Project X-Zone 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Project Cross-Zone 2. I keep saying X-Zone. Oh, right? whatever. It's X-Zone. <laughs> Who cares? There's a big X in the middle of it. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so uh, I don't know if you could in the original, but you could pair up uh, 
you of course you had your teams and you can't alter those, but you can pair up a solo unit. Uh, that's as about as far as your customization is getting. Besides, like you know, you can equip some items uh, to kind of you know boost your stats or lower them depending on the situation. Um, but really, what kind of did it for me is yes, it is absolutely a slow game, and I noted as much in my review. Like I could not finish it before I reviewed it. Um, but at the same time, I just had a good time. And I guess part of that is because the game's writing is so hilarious. <laughs> like, <laughs> like my, like people who follow me on Twitter probably saw the crazier stuff I was sharing just, um, and like I noted in my review, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, oh, the characters are spouting memes, haha, how funny. It was a matter of the characters were all more or less in character, but the way they interacted with each other, that's where all the humor came from. I mean, there were memes, so don't get me wrong. I mean, just uh, you had that one line about the uh, Welcome to Cheetah Burger, home of the Action 50 Tuna Melt, which I pretty much dropped my 3DS at that point. I gave up. <laughs> 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 but it was so ridiculous and so much fun that, yes, even though there was grinding, I was kind of okay with getting through it as long as I could see more of what the characters were going to say to each other. And, I mean, the the basic story, of course, is quite shallow as well. This, you know, demons, chains, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, you know, at least I get to see X and Zero again as well, because I'm not seeing them anywhere else, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll admit that's part of the charm, right, is mm-hmm. I think I led my review off originally was that it is pretty, uh, yeah, just the strange. opportunity to see characters from Valkyria Chronicles in like really nice 2D sprites. Uh-huh. That was awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, I could watch this all day on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I could understand. Especially you're you're pretty big into like RPG, uh, sorry, not RPGs, like strategy games too, if I'm not mistaken, right? I am. That's why I'm a bit of a snob uh, about the genre. I don't think you're being snobby about it. Just uh, I-, I can totally understand why you might be a little more sensitive to the game's flaws than other people. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and that, and I'm a big Super Robot Wars fan. Have you ever played that one? No, I haven't. So, admittedly, Super Robot Wars is a bit of a grind as well. Um, I would say in terms of tactics, it's well below Final Fantasy Tactics or Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason it works is that it goes a lot more... It, it does a better job of capturing kind of the flavor of the individual series in the way the customization works. So yeah. you have items from the individual series. Uh, the pilots have abilities that translate from their individual series. There's right. a certain fanish element of, well, I could have Char fly this weak-ass ship, but I think it would be way cooler if I stuck him in the turn A Gundam, which is the craziest, most powerful Gundam in the entire universe, yeah. and watch him wipe everything out and there's a degree of min maxing going on in the way that you can equip items and like uh, and the points that you assign to individual units and then individual units will have like superpowers and there's a rhythm and a flow to the way that you buff everything and the way that abilities become steadily available Uh and it's a bit of a like I said it's a grind like every single mission is kill all of the things on the field but by the end you're like Oh, I, uh, but by the end, you know, it's really intensely satisfying to unleash like this ridiculous combo yeah. for thousands upon thousands of damage, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can totally understand where you're coming from because that sounds a lot more fans, like, like specific to the fandom 
nuanced, as it were. Um, whereas, of course, Project Cross Zone 2, you're getting, God, I think it's like 58 characters from these different backgrounds, like everything mm. from Nintendo to Capcom. So, like, yeah, at, you know, I'd be playing and I'd be like, okay, why are X and Zero afflicted by poison? They're robots, you know, that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But No, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you just kind of put it to the back of your head. I'll be honest with you, I had a hard time scoring the game because I was thinking, okay, um, this is slow for reasons that they could have fixed. Like, I think it's ridiculous to have you go up against, like, three bosses at once. Uh, and the challenge isn't so much about strategizing. It's more about can you endure this onslaught? Like, how many healing items do you have on you, basically? Um, but I was thinking to myself, in the end, when everything is all said and done, did I have fun? And frankly, yes, I had fun. I laughed my ass off. And even the, the game itself, like, I understand why pulling off those combos over and over, you know, okay, it's repetitive in theory, but I still had fun doing it, especially kind of matching up characters to see, like, okay, so-and-so has this uh, this shield-busting move, you know, if I pair him up with so-and-so who's a more, you know, straightforward fighter, I can get further. It's just small stuff like that. Um when it all, when you can't when it's all said and done, I had a good time. I think that's really a good example. Like you've cited the localization twice now. Mm. I think that's a really good example of how a great localization can kind of save a game. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And it can also kind of wreck a game, right? Because it can. That's I mean, why I was, that's why I was careful to mention that the characters are not out of character. It's not like you have Strider, like you know, saying, "Hey guys, watch me," you know, do this backflip. He's he's Strider. He's stoic. He's cold, but he's you know, he is who he is in the game. And I think it's doubly important in this circumstance because, if I'm not mistaken, the story in Project Cross Zone isn't all that deep, right? No, it's very, very shallow. It's all about the characters. It's the, the story itself is like, whatever. You'll forgive me for like comparing it to Super Robot Wars again, but one of the charms of Super Robot Wars is that it weaves all of these different stories together Yes. Into one gigantic, insane plot line, right? Yeah. It's basically yeah. saying Evangelion and Gundam and Mazinger and Getter Robo and like everything under the sun, they're all in one big universe mm -hmm. and they're all working together and they will pick shows that work together pretty well in that context, like yeah. that have similar themes to them so that they can all put them into one game and when it works um alpha guide n is a terrific example because uh turn a gundam and gundam x which are both kind of set in this weird uh future history post-apocalyptic kind of environment mm -hmm. uh they work really well together they they go together like peanut butter and jelly delicious so <laughs> so i i don't mean to be like well project cross zone is dumb because super robot wars is so much better no no i i absolutely see where you're coming from and it's really it's a really interesting situation where like different reviewers just their different viewpoints uh i don't know if my viewpoint of project cross zone 2 would be any different if i played robot wars and if i was like a big fan of those series to begin with mm -hmm. but i can absolutely see why the more care was obviously put into robot wars versus uh, project cross zone too and that's not to dump on the developers or anything like that it's just more as i said nuanced more detailed more they thought about every angle whereas project cross zone too is more like hey let's have a big wild party 
Yeah, when you um, so I didn't bring you on the show just so I can tell you how wrong you are and or dump <laughs> no, on no, Project Cross Zone. I have uh, been on shows to be told where, how wrong I am, so don't worry about that. I was just legitimately curious to be like, okay, like I really want to get your perspective on mm-hmm. why Project Cross Zone Two works for you, and it sounds like a lot of that is to do with the localization mm-hmm. and that, especially especially the localization just brings this sense of don't take it too seriously. We're in for a wild party. We're having fun. We're just having a good time. And uh, something I should mention is uh, a lot of people have chimed in on the comments to basically, I get the, I get the impression that if you did not like the first one, you're probably not going to get much out of this one, unless you're a huge fan of some of the characters, especially some of the newbies. Who are the, some of the new characters that get brought in for this version? Uh, Krom and Lucina. Uh, oh, right. Nintendo's in here for some Nintendo's reason. Nintendo's in there, yep. Uh, Fiora, I think, is new. Uh, who else is new? There, there's a few new dudes. Um, it's hard for me to say for sure, but since I didn't play the first one. But, uh, yeah, seeing Krom and Lucina in there is pretty interesting. And, of course, you have the characters commenting on, like, oh, wait, their father and daughter? How is that even possible? And, and Krom is like, it's really not what you think. <laughs> Okay, so just that's... small things like that, like all yeah. over the game. Hmm. And I bet Kron and Lucina look really great with that uh, the 2D sprite work. Oh, they do. Um, just the the detail that went into each attack, and of course, every character has several attacks. And just uh, when you consider the volume of the characters, uh, yeah, there's a lot of hard work put into the graphics. Uh, I think the trade-off though is that the overworld, the overworld maps, they tend to get a little squished. Uh, and even though you can rotate the camera, sometimes you can't rotate it quite enough and in the quite the same angle. Like there's one map that takes place in the dot .hack world. It is dot .hack, right? That's how it's pronounced? That's how the kids say it these days? It should be dot .hack, yeah. Okay. Um, it's like kind of a cyberspace area, and uh, it's multi-tiered in spots, but it's hard to tell because it's like kind of a translucent field. It's very odd, but I had a hard time with that stage. And also with uh, the stage that introduces X and Zero, unfortunately, which is quote-unquote cyberspace. And uh, it's all narrow, and it's really hard to get around. And luckily, not too many stages gave me that kind of a problem. Hmm, Indeed. I should add that I have a bit of a checkered history with this series. Because it it actually extends all the way back to the PlayStation 2. Yes. Uh, I forget what the exact name of that was. It might have been just Capcom Cross Namco. Yeah, I think it was Capcom Cross Namco. Or something to that effect. And I didn't play that one because it never came out here, but it did not have a great reputation. Mm -hmm. And then they split out the Bandai Namco characters and made something called Super Robot Wars something, 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 something. (laughs) And... It actually was localized by Atlas, and it came out here. Oh, really? And it was kind of interesting because you had the characters from Capcom, Crass, Namco, or whatever. Like mm-hmm. the main characters, like the cowboy guy. Yeah. Do you know who I'm talking about? And um, one of the characters from Xenosaga, uh, the, the cyborg. Oh, uh, Cosmos? K-O-S-M-O-S or whatever? Cosmos. They call it... like. Yeah, okay, I've been calling her Cosmos. My husband said I'm stupid. He said it's Cosmos. Uh, oh. Someone's going to have to... Uh, <laughs> that actually makes more sense. It makes a lot more sense. And I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. But then like, I hear Fiora, like all the voices are in Japanese, but she calls her Cosmos. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't even know. Her boobs open up and a cannon comes out. That's all I remember. Endless Frontier, that was the name. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, Endless Frontier came out, and I think it might have been the first game that I reviewed from 1UP. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, and I hated it because (laughs) it's actually an RPG, right? It's not a strategy RPG. Oh, okay. So you're running around in an overworld, you're doing maps and everything, and a lot like Project Cross Zone and Capcom Cross Namco or whatever, it's, again, a bit of a grind. Like, the battles (laughs) take forever to get through. Yeah, uh, and it's once again dial combos and <laughs> dial combos. I love that. And using your like robot at the proper time because they all have mechs from <laughs> the original generation Super Robot Wars series. Um, and so you're basically just trying to extend the combos as long as possible, which it's admittedly more in depth than uh, Cross Zone, but. <laughs> Good lord, I I got tired of that game pretty quick because I can, under, I can understand why that would not appeal to you so much. I feel bad for just like dumping on these games like all the time, but no, no, honestly, like they are not without their flaws by any by mm. any means, and I really hope I conveyed that in my review. Mm. Uh, especially since I've heard that uh, Bandai Namco promised, oh, we'll fix the f- some of the flaws this time, because yeah, people were complaining about the grinding and whatnot, and. I don't know if this is new to the second one, but you can initiate attacks. Like you can attack two characters or two or two or sorry, up to four bad guys at once in very specific circumstances. But right, there are I, map attacks, right? Yeah, were those in the first one? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I well, just remembered. Know. Like my 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 memory of this series is a tiny bit sketchy at this yeah. point. But uh, either way, they they're not very effective Pokemon lingo right there not very effective uh, not very effective and you they don't the opportunity to do them doesn't come up very much so they really don't save you any time Mm. it's a little disappointing and i really do hope that with the third game because i'm third fourth whatever it is at this point i'm sure with the next game they will hopefully address some of those problems this time please uh because i really think project cross zone i really think it has the potential to be excellent instead of just like a really fun novelty hmm but uh, you, it really has a lot of work to do before it can get like anywhere near revered status for for a, a strategy game. I would just like to add one more rant. Sure. It blows my mind that Bandai Namco is releasing Project Cross Zone in the U.S., but not, say, Super Robot Wars Original Generations, which is a vastly superior game and has none of the licensing issues that... Yeah, because... Uh... Banda, uh, Project Cross Zone, I'm sure had to have, like, got to be, like, copyright hell right there in a cartridge. Yeah, and all I can think is that they probably did a study of the U.S. and determined that there aren't enough fans of original generations in the U.S. Yeah. to justify it, but that they can easily sell people on Mega Man and also those Valkyria Chronicles people and uh, Krom and Lucina and all of these characters all together in one game. You know who they are. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pretend to know who these robots are. Uh, never mind the fact that it's just a great, it, it's a very good strategy RPG on its own. Who cares about that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I really, I really do hope that it. Rant, 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 <laughs> rant. <laughs> I'm realizing that I'm seriously just bringing you on here to vent, and I apologize. <laughs> no, I I am like 100% okay with that, because I really do agree with you. Um, for one thing, when you get right down to it, the world needs more and better strategy games. Yes, I totally agree. The, the, we can always use more and better strategy games, and that's just grammar. When I was at GamePro, the Bandai Namco PR guy hated me. 
Oh, I'm pretty sure. No, he didn't hate me. Uh, it was Job Stauffer who is over at Telltale now, mm-hmm. and he used to. He knew that I played a lot of Bandai Namco games, so mm-hmm. he would come to Game Pro quite a bit because he knew he would get coverage from me, oh. and I would almost literally chase him to the elevator lobby explaining to him <laughs> why Bandai Namco needed to be localizing Super Robot Wars and uh, various Gundam games and God knows what else. And you could tell that he had no idea what the heck I was talking about. I'm just picturing him like waiting for the elevator, desperately pressing the button while you're clinging to his leg and he's trying to kick you off. <laughs> Basically. I felt bad for the guy, and of course he had to deal with, um, yeah, well, I'm not going to get any more into that, but, (laughs) I, yeah, so, Job, I apologize for basically, like, making your life hell, but uh, I've always been a little disappointed in Bandai Namco's localization decisions, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that's that's definitely a valid feeling, a valid viewpoint. So you don't have to feel bad about ranting about it whatsoever. I totally understand, and I agree. But Project Cross Zone 2, um, it's obvious that if you want to go in for just maybe kind of a palette cleanser mm-hmm, exactly. game, um, you just want to look at the pretty animations, you want to enjoy the uh, amusing script that the localization team has put together, you want to see some of your characters in glorious 2D sprites, then maybe Project Cross Zone 2 is for you. It really is. Uh, if even a little bit of that appeals to you, it is definitely worth the price. It it just has a ton of content. And uh, it also has the, the Crosspedia, quote-unquote, which you can really dig into to kind of get caught up on the characters, with the worlds they're from. It's, it's a, it's a well-done game uh, for all its flaws. Like, the localization is excellent. The... I can't complain about that whatsoever. Indeed. All right, Nadia. So really quickly, where can we find you on Twitter so that we can hear more of your lovely RPG thoughts? I'm at Nadia Oxford. That's one word. Uh, And I'm done with posting the screenshots for now. So sorry about that. But you can get caught up if you want. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, I was also seeing some more. Somebody else, I think it was Henry Gilbert, who Mm -hmm. used to work over at Games Radar, was also posting screenshots from Project Cross Zone 2. Yeah. So he was clearly taken by the localization as well. Yeah. And of course, you can find me at the underscore catbot. Uh, you can find Mike Williams, who was here earlier for Fire Emblems at Automatic Zen. Follow us at uh, our regular website on Twitter at USGamerNet and on YouTube at USGamer. I am trying to make more videos. I am right now making a closer look video about why Fire Emblem Conquest maps are interesting to me. And it should be up by the time this podcast is up. So please go and check out that we're also streaming a lot more on our twitch channel jeremy as i record this podcast is in the middle of a run through the original legend of zelda on the famicom disc system Mm -hmm. Uh, we're planning on doing stuff like this every week we're either going to be checking out new games or we're going to be streaming retro games Uh, one thing that us gamer does we talk about retro games better than anybody else oh yeah we're we're experts so that's why we're also going to be streaming them and it's going to be fun and in the meantime, uh, Acts of the Blood God, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever popular podcasts are sold. <laughs> uh, please do me a favor and keep rating and reviewing us. The more you rate and review us, the more visibility we have, and the more people know that, hey, there's this sweet RPG podcast that people yeah. should be listening to. Tell all your buddies. Exactly. 
And next time on Acts of the Blood God, I am trying to currently wrangle in a expert on competitive Pokemon battling, hopefully from Smogon or somewhere else, um, so that we can go a little in-depth on that, because next week is the 20th anniversary of the Pokemon Red and Green's release over mm-hmm. in Japan. Wow, we're all very old. I guess so, at this point. Nadia, are you a Pokemon fan? I am a Pokemon fan. I am not nearly as, like, I'm not as much as a, uh, a fan as some of the people who, like, get into, like, the battle scene, but I had read, I had, uh, I played that. Um, gosh, my first summer job, all we did was play Pokemon instead of actually working. That was good. <laughs> that was a good job. I like that job. It's okay, Nadia. Not all of us can be Pokemon masters. I know. I am very much a Pokemon schlub, but I do very much appreciate <laughs> the, the franchise, the monsters, and I can totally understand the appeal. And I can talk about it if you want me to talk about it sometime. Well, given that you are the only other person on staff that I know of who actually likes Pokemon. Really? Are we are we that deprived? Yeah, well, Jeremy was, Jeremy will tell you that he was too old for Pokemon when it came out, which, ah, that's uh, not true. You're, you're never, never too, too old, old for Pokemon. Pokemon. Like, what the heck is that? Uh, I don't know Mike's stance on the series. I know that Bob is not a fan. And Jazz is like, what the heck is Pokemon? So, <laughs> You kids. Yeah, exactly. Like, Jazz was already, like, at least in the 60s by the time Pokemon came out. He was too busy <laughs> playing Defender. I kid. I, I love Jazz. But... He's awesome. Yeah, exactly. So I, I guess that kind of leaves us. We were kind of in that sweet spot, Nadia, yeah, so of not being too old, not being too young. Just right. Young at heart. We're in the Goldilocks zone of Pokemon fandom. We really are. In any case, uh, so yeah, I'm going to be talking about that next week. And I also have an interview with Obsidian about Pillars of Eternity. Uh, The White March Part 2 just came out, and I'm going to be interviewing the director about what he thinks about that and like how it's come along over the past year and what Obsidian is going to be doing over the next, well, probably with the sequel, I'm guessing. So also please look forward to that. We got a lot more awesome RPG content coming your way. But for now, I've been Kat Bailey. Thanks to Nadia and Mike for coming on the show. And until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.